Aren't you glad that that song didn't say, it is well with my body, it is well with my emotions, it is well with my circumstances, but the writer of that knew in the greatest hardship of his life, losing his children, my, my walk with God is okay. I know when I die, I will see Christ again. I know I'm a child of God, and because of that, it is well with my soul. Hebrews chapter 9, turn there if you would, Hebrews 9. The writer here is reminding us, and he's trying to do his best to elevate Jesus Christ in our minds and in the minds of the readers of this original letter. Many of them Jewish believers who were wandering away from Judaism and into the church because God had established something brand new, the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. And as he was trying to help them understand that uh, I know there's going to be some trials because of this, and many of them were facing that, family and friends didn't understand how could you leave Judaism. And they said, well, because Christ has fulfilled all of that, and now we have this new relationship with Jesus Christ, and it was causing all kinds of trials and hardships upon them. So some of them were saying, listen, I, I, I believe all the theology, but I think we're just going to go back to Judaism because it'll be safer, it'll be easier, and nobody will get their feelings hurt. The writer is saying you can't do that. That's just a picture. That's just a shadow. The Old Testament was just all pointing to Jesus Christ. We have the reality, and God wants us to live in this new relationship, the once and for all sacrifice for sins through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And so he's comparing and contrasting the last few weeks, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, what Jesus Christ is. He is our High Priest, and today he wants us to understand that Jesus is to be the central hub of my life. And if you go back to Judaism, you're missing the point. And so God wants us to understand that his once and for all sacrifice, it helps us to understand that it is so much better, so much more meaningful, so much more practical in our daily life. So let's pray and jump into Hebrews 9. Father, thank you today. Thank you for your love and your compassion for us. Some of the great songs that we just sang, how deep the Father's love for us, how great you are since you came into our heart, Lord, and as well. I pray, Lord, that as we think about some of those songs, even later today, maybe we'll be humming them or singing them or thinking through them. Help us to continue to worship you because of who you are, because of what you've done for us. And Lord, our situation is not the same exact situation that the Hebrew original writers or readers of this text were seeing. Our danger is not to go back into Judaism. But Lord, as your children living in the 21st century, sometimes our danger is to wander away from the church or other Christians, or fellowship, and to try to live this Christian life independently. And Lord, we miss the point as well. So Lord, teach us what it is you want us to learn to apply to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to see the first 14 verses this morning, Hebrews 9, 1 to 14, but let's look at the first five verses together and look at the first concept he wants to get across because he's, he's taking us back to the Old Testament again and to the tabernacle of what was going on. He said this, verse number one, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service any worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubim of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly so he wants to remind us here just of a couple of things of the old testament tabernacle the sanctuary to which we may say not not as familiar with that as i probably should be these readers they were living it they understood it it was part of their everyday worship experience well for those living in jerusalem um they would go to the temple on a regular basis. It wasn't just a tabernacle. Now it was an elaborate building covered with gold and precious stones and everything. But they got to see part of it. They didn't see all of it. They got to see part of it. Again, for us, and he doesn't want us to dive into all the details of what the tabernacle was. But I want to give you just a glimpse. We'll, we'll look at a couple of uh, pictures up here. We just, uh, we just lost it again. Maybe we won't. So in the Old Testament tabernacle, I'll try to paint as good of a picture as it can in your mind. So when they would go into the tabernacle, they would go into the tabernacle through these the, the, the doors. It was, it was pretty much just curtains that they set up. They would go into that, and the first thing they would see is this altar where they would sacrifice animals. And it was done day after day after day. Animals were sacrificed. On the other side of that, there was a brazen laver. There we go. So there's a brazen laver. So you had to sacrifice and go through the tents. They would, they would only be able to stay in the courtyard. And in the courtyard, they would have the, the laver where the priests would wash themselves. And that building beyond that was called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was another room that was called the holy of Holy. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see a little breakdown. So here's a little breakdown. As the priests, only the priests could go into the holy place, and only the high priests could go into the holy of holies once a year in the day of atonement. So as they would come in here, there was the table of showbread, there was the golden candlestick, and there was the altar of incense. And so as they would go in there, they would sacrifice. Um, put some blood on the altar of incense. Once a year they go to the Ark of the Covenant, put the, the, uh, the, the blood on the Ark of the Covenant there. So that, that's kind of what they saw, they understood. And then one more we'll look at. And if you see here, the tabernacle there was in the center. They would have to take this down, set it up, take it down, set it up, all throughout the wilderness wanderings. But if you notice, all of the tribes were around. That was the central place. Is there a central place of worship? So where was God? God's in the middle. 
So as you think through here, and we can be done with that, but, but I just want to give you a glimpse, because his goal is not to teach us about the tabernacle, because they understood that. Now for us, we're like, I've heard it in Sunday school, I know about it, but I never experienced it. These guys experienced it, not the tabernacle, but the temple. Same setup, and that was a picture of what God had already in heaven. So that was a picture of what God had in heaven. That wasn't the reality. The reality is heaven. That was a glimpse. That was a picture for us. And so he reminds us here, as he reminds us all that was going on, what was the tabernacle about? Well, for them, they had to understand that it was all about sin. I have to sacrifice regularly. Not to get saved. Because salvation was always about faith. Abraham, saved by faith. Adam, saved by faith. Everybody, before and after, we've all been saved by faith. Faith in the Messiah that would one day come and, and finally deal with our sins. But until that time came, we had this barrier. We couldn't have this right relationship with God because we're sinners. So for about 15, 14, 1500 years, God had set up this elaborate system of Judaism. And who thought that up? Well, God did. So I thought Moses gave him the, Moses on the mountain got the instructions from God and he said, listen, I've called these people my own. And so on the mountain, God gave them this description of how he wanted mankind to relate to him. But there's a barrier, right? The, the Jew could go into the temple courtyard and make a sacrifice. But they couldn't go into the holy place. And they could never go into the holy of holies. Not even a regular priest could do that. Only the high priest could go into the place where God dwelt. Now, God didn't only live there, right? God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is holy. God is everywhere, so to speak. But in a special, unique way, God said, I want you to understand, I'm here with you. And... Who decided that God would be in the center? Well, God did. God said, I want to be the center, and I want you to encamp all around me. So every tribe has the same access to me. You're just as close as everybody else, but I'm in the center. So that's the picture, I think, that he wants us to understand. But because sin wasn't fully dealt with by the blood of animal sacrifices, there was a barrier. You could get close to God, and God wanted mankind close. In fact, God wanted man to have a deep, intimate relationship with him, but because of sin that's not fully dealt with, there's a little barrier. Now, you can have fellowship, and I'm going to make it possible, but there was a barrier. And there's always been a barrier, and there always would be a barrier unless God did something unique. So go to chapter Hebrews 9, verse number 6. He says this, Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. If he went in there without blood, God would have to kill him. Because he had to come in with blood. He had to come in with a sacrifice. 
not because the sacrifice was enough to save, not because the sacrifice was enough to bring man in fellowship with God, but that was the only way that God could make it possible until the cross. So God said, I'm going to allow you to do this with the blood of animal sacrifices for a time, but it's not enough. One day the Messiah will come. So he had to come with blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Jesus Christ, he didn't. He's the great high priest. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. The Holy Ghost, thus signifying that the way into the holiest, here's this, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was not revealed yet while as yet the first tabernacle was standing, which is a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. So there was a reminder in that tabernacle, in the temple later on, there was a reminder constantly that the sacrifices weren't enough. Why do we know that? Well, because what do they do every single day? There had to be another sacrifice, and another sacrifice, and another sacrifice. Why? Because man kept sinning. And they could never, the Old Testament law could never make man not sin anymore. And sometimes we think if, if we were just more specific and more clear, on how you're supposed to live your life, the more details we get, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, now maybe we'll be able to do it. And here's the problem. The more don'ts people put in front of you, does that make you feel like, oh, I really want to be holy now? <laughs> no, it's just the opposite effect, right? The more things that tell you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, we tend to want to rebel. Like, who are you to tell me not to do that? Right? It's our human nature. And even when it comes from God, when God says, listen, I, you're my child, I love you, here's some things I don't want you to do. And we're like, well, why can't I do that? Other people do that, why can't I do that? That's just because you're my child, and, and I, it would hurt me if you would do that, so please don't do that. And we struggle so often with not doing what we want to do with our lives. So he reminds us that the Old Testament tabernacle, it just reminded us that the sacrifices were not enough. But here's the thing. When God was giving the, the, the law and was given the, the, the way he wanted the tabernacle set up, he said, this is what I want you to do because I want to fellowship with mankind. What was man doing? They're down there creating another God to worship. And yet God said, I know, but I love him anyway. And I want to fellowship with man. Even though he knew, man's going to blow it. Man's going to blow it every single day. We're going to blow it, we're going to blow it, we're going to blow it. But I want fellowship with man every single day. And that was what the Old Testament tabernacle was about. There was barriers, yes, but here's the idea. God put it there for fellowship. He put the tabernacle there so that we could have fellowship with him. See, yeah, but they had all these things, they had the hoops they had to jump through. 
And they did. But God said, but I put those hoops up because you're unholy. And if you jump through these hoops, we can have fellowship. So they, they had to sacrifice. They had to do not just sacrificial sins, but they had to bring gifts, love offerings, grain offerings. They had to bring other things, their tithes. They had to do these things. And God said, this doesn't make you holy. But this is, in order to have fellowship, I've set up some things that we can have fellowship with. And yet, man, for all of history has said, yeah, but I don't want to do it that way. I, I want to fellowship with you, but I want to live on my terms. God says, I'm sorry. I want to fellowship with you, but I'm God. You have to live on my terms. And so he set up what we look at and we think, well, that was, that was difficult. I'm glad I didn't live in that day. I'm glad we live under grace. But here's the thing. Living under grace doesn't mean it's that easy, easy for us to live for God. It doesn't mean I have fellowship with God just because I remember... I look back to a time when I invited grace in my life, I was born again, I'm a child of God, so now I have grace every day of my life. And so I can do whatever I want to do, because I want to grace. God says, no, no, hold that thought. Yes, I've made it possible. But no, just because I'm a child of God doesn't mean that every day I can live anyway. So go to verse number 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The word redemption, remember we looked a few weeks ago, he loosed this from our sins. He bought us back. He made a payment. Eternal. He has obtained an eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he reminded us of the insufficiency of the sacrifice. That could never draw us near, right? Because the blood of bulls and goats could never make us holy. But God said here for a time, for about 14, 1500 years, God set up this elaborate system and he said, I want fellowship with you. And so here's the process. Here's the way you do it. Now it's by faith there's a Messiah coming, so believe in Him. But I want you to go through all of these details. I need you to sacrifice these animals because when you sin, you need to realize you're a sinner. You need to confess it. You need to bring it before me. You need to bring an animal. You need to sacrifice it. Shed the blood, and He's going to put it on the altar. And then once a year, He's going to go high priest, going to the Holy of Holies, and He's going to sacrifice the blood on top of that. That place is called the mercy seat. Same words used in, in 1 John chapter 2, the propitiation. He, Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction. The blood of animals can't satisfy God. But for a time, he allowed that to work. So, think about an Old Testament saint 
talking to his eight-year-old son in the Old Testament under the tabernacle system. And, he, and, he, and they were traveling to go maybe 20, 30 miles to go to the tabernacle to make an offering for their sin. And, and little boy says, so, so daddy, when we kill this animal, we get forgiven of our sins. Yes, that's what God wants us to do. So that animal saved us then. And we say, well, no, the animal's not saving us. With the blood, God is doing something with the blood as a temporary covering, but he said he's going to send the Messiah one day. So imagine being that dad in the Old Testament. So if there's coming a Messiah, why do we have to do this? And what if I don't do this? Do I not get saved? He said, well, you're not getting saved by the sacrifice of the animals. You get saved by faith in the coming Messiah. So, Daddy, I don't want to sacrifice an animal. I love my animal, and I don't want to do this, so what if I never sacrifice an animal? Do I get saved? And can you see the tension that an Old Testament father might have trying to explain to his son, well, you don't have to do this to get saved. We're saved by faith. And it would have been, it would have been a, tough, a tough conversation, right? But we don't live in that conversation, but we live today in a different conversation. Right, your Johnny says, Daddy, so we have to go to church to be saved? Well, no, you don't have to go to church to be saved. We get saved because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He went to the cross, he died for our sins, and we're saved by faith in Christ alone. So if I pray and ask Jesus in my life, then I can be saved and go to heaven. Yes, Johnny, that's great. You can do that. And then I never have to go to church again? And you see the struggle we face. Because God didn't set up the church as a barrier to fellowship of you don't need to you don't need to do any of this. You don't need to be a good person. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to be a good person at work. You can just live any way you want and still go to heaven when you die. And yet we all know some people who say they trust in Christ their Savior, but they're like, hey, but I don't want to go to church and I don't want to read my Bible and I want to talk like the world and act like the world and think like the world. And we're like, yeah, but... And they would say, yeah, but I trusted Christ. So aren't I saved by faith alone? And we would say, and that's the tension, right? Because we understand there's only one way to be saved. Old Testament, New Testament. It's, it's in the faith of the Messiah who would come or who did come. And yet God set all of this up. Not to mess our lives up with, all right, I know you want to do other things on Sunday, but I want you to go to church. He set it up because he wants fellowship with me. And he wants me to fellowship with other believers. And one of the great things about church is that we get to do both. And can we know to do it on Saturday now? He told us to do it on Sunday. And we have this privilege that Jesus Christ came. And notice what he said. He did this, verse 12, he did this once having obtained an eternal redemption for us. Verse 11, it's a greater and a more perfect tabernacle. It's not an earthly one, it's the one in heaven. This building is not the earthly tabernacle. It didn't replace the Old Testament tabernacle. This is a building where God's people meet. And I'm not your priest, although I am a priest, 
But if you're a child of God, you're a priest. And you don't need to go to heaven, or you don't need to go through anybody else to get to God. You can directly go into his throne, as he said in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us, as individual priests, come with confidence to the very throne room of God in heaven. The barrier is gone. The Old Testament tabernacle was all about a barrier. There's a barrier up. You can't have direct access to God. Only the high priest could do it once a year on the, on the Day of Atonement. And he was fearful every time he did that. I get to go into the very throne room of God anytime I want. As long as I've confessed my sin and I'm right with God and I'm a child of God, I can go into there. But we should do that also with a little bit of fear. Because who am I? Who are you? To knock on the throne room in heaven and say, hey, God, I, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. While he's running the universe. And you know what he does every time? Come in, my son. Because I'd like to talk to you, too. What a privilege that we have. That we, we don't stop and think about. Because the Old Testament tabernacle temple, it was all about the barriers. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? The veil was rent in two. God took the, the payment to heaven and said, it is finished. The access for Ron Whitehead to go into the throne room of God is paid in full. Same thing for you as well. What a privilege. And so he says this, verse number 14, how much more... Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, do what? To serve the living God. We as sinful people, yet born again, if you trust in Christ your Savior, we as sinful people still get to go to heaven when we die, and we still get to have access to, to the throne room of God every time we pray, but he reminds us that we need to come, because of the blood of Christ, he purges our conscience from dead works to do what? To serve. That word serve is, it literally could be translated, and it is in other places, to worship the living God. And that's my responsibility and your responsibility on this planet. Hebrews, or 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what God expects out of his children. He expects me to live a life of worship, a life of service to him. And, and service to him is not just serving in this building, though we could do that and should do that as God gives us ability and gifts and time. But we serve as we leave this building. We gather together, we fellowship, we worship, and then we spend the next six days in the world hopefully serving and worshiping God as we minister to people, as we talk to people, as we look for opportunities. Lord, use me 
to point somebody else to Jesus Christ. Help me to serve you this week. When I see somebody in need, help me to serve them. When I when I understand somebody's having a problem, help me to pray for them. Lord, help me to, to, to give. Help me to do what I can do to help out other people in this world so that when people see the light of my life, they don't look at me. They glorify their our Father, which is in heaven. And he reminds us to let our light shine on a daily basis. So God did all of this, and, and he wants me to have fellowship. One of the great ways we can fellowship with God corporately is through church. So can I go to heaven without going to church? Well, of course, because we're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by doing good works. But why would we want to do something that God tells us is good? Why would we want to not do that? He encourages us. It's part of our relationship with God. Hold your place here. We, we won't come back. Go, go if you would to John chapter 4. John 4. John chapter 4. And don't miss this. If, if somebody gets saved and genuinely they're saved, and they spend the next 50, 60, 70 years, and they never serve God. God does not miss out on anything. That person does, but God doesn't need me. He's God. If I choose not to serve God, He doesn't miss out. I miss out. He's sufficient in who he is and what he does. He doesn't tell me to serve him because he needs me. He tells me to serve him because he knows the greatest satisfaction and contentment in life is when I do this, when I make him the central hub of my life. Not just on Sundays, but he wants me to do that on Sundays. That's why he tells us, gather every Sunday and worship. Now, if I decide I'm not going to do that, he doesn't miss out. Other Christians may miss out of my fellowship or your fellowship, but he doesn't miss out. But he tells us to do that because there is something special and unique about God's people getting together to worship that cannot be replicated in your living room or sitting down by a river somewhere. It just can't be replicated anywhere else. So he calls us to do this because he knows that's the best thing for you. And he encourages us as much as we possibly can. We can't always every week, right? But as much as we possibly can gather together for worship, not because he needs it, but you need it. He tells me to spend time every day in the word of God. Why? Because he'll miss out if I don't. Oh, no, no, no. I miss out if I don't. He's not putting barriers up so that he makes my life miserable. He's putting stepping stones for me to draw closer to him. John 4, great illustration, great story of the woman who was at the well. Jesus met her, and she's been living an immoral and godly life. And Jesus said, hey, why don't you go call your husband? She's like, I'm not married. Like, I know you're not married. I have five husbands. And you're living with somebody who's not your husband, which is immoral. And he said to her, she said, I think you're a prophet. 
Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. This is Samaria. But your people, see the Samaritans, we think this is the mountain we should worship. Your people, the Jews, think it should be in Jerusalem that you ought to worship. So what's she trying to do? She's trying to change the subject, right? He just said, you're, you're living in immorality. And she said, oh, let's change the subject. And he, she said, where do you think we should worship? Is it Jerusalem or is it Jerusalem? Which mountain is the right one to worship? And he said this, woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you don't know what. You don't even know who you worship. You don't even know what you, you don't even know what you're doing in worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is a great story. You'll read that later. She gets saved and brings other people to Christ. But, but notice the principle, what Jesus said. We worship God in spirit. It's a, it's a thing between me and him, spiritually. But we need to worship him in truth. There's a lot of misunderstanding about how to worship God out there. But God's given us the scriptures and what he wants me to do and how he wants me to worship him. And I should worship him that way. But because we're skeptical by nature, I think we tend to think of God as like us. Like, yeah, but he wants me to be in church every day because he wants something out of me. Or he wants me to read my Bible because he wants something out of me. There's got to be an ulterior motive. You know what his ulterior motive is? He wants you to experience him to the fullest. It's not because he wants to get something out of you. He just wants my money so he can build more stuff. God doesn't need your money. He he's, creates whatever he wants to create. God wants you. What a beautiful picture. The tabernacle, we look at it, we think the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, we, like, we look at it and we think, boy, there was a barrier. And God said, yes, because man's unholy. But I put me in the center of of everything because I want man to fellowship with me. Today, all the barriers are gone. He finished them on the cross and he invites us to have fellowship with him every single day. And the sad thing is that some days you and me, we say to God, I'm just too busy. Too busy to fellowship. I know it's the most important thing that I could ever do on this planet, but sometimes I just don't have enough time. And then if we were to evaluate our time, we would look at so many other things we put in front of him that were less important, we didn't fellowship. Or on the weekends, like, but, and everything that's going on is happening on a Sunday. And so I just, I can't always, you know, fellowship with God, because I got so many other things to do, and God doesn't miss out. God's not in heaven saying, oh, he didn't come to church, or he didn't care about me, or what am I going to do? But oh, what I miss when I don't spend time in fellowship with God. So all that Jesus did, the cross and everything, 
it was because he wanted you to experience him to the fullest. Not the other way around. He knows every detail about my life, every detail about what's in my heart. He doesn't need me to do anything to show him who I am. He knows it all. Better than I know me. He knows me completely. And yet this book, this ministry, every opportunity to serve him, it's all about me getting to know him better. And that's what heaven's going to be about too. Until we get to heaven, this life is a practice for heaven. And we get to practice what we believe about who Jesus is every day of our lives.